0: When I was in seminary, somewhere along the way, I was warned that the pastor who ignores Mother's Day does so to his peril. They never said anything about Father's Day, but I figured I'd better say Happy Father's Day too. Especially now that I am one, I feel especially invested in pointing that out. And also, if you're, um, if you're visiting with us for the first time, I also want to extend my welcome to you. We're glad that you're here with us worshiping this morning. And this summer, we're uh, looking at the book of Judges. This ancient, obscure book from the Old Testament um, brings up the question of why Well, we said last week that the book of Judges highlights this reality that we 're going to come back to time and again that the greatness of god 's grace shines most brightly in the depths to which it reaches and If you were here last week you 'll remember um, that we looked at this very same passage that 's in your bulletin today. We looked at the same passage last week and In this passage, we saw um, one thing that we talked about, that God loves the unlovely. That's who qualifies. That's who can receive God's love. Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at the same passage again, um, but we're going to be looking for uh, something a little bit different that I think the Lord teaches us in this passage. So we're going to be looking at Judges 2, verses 1 through 19. It's on page 201 in my Bible, and it's on page 201 in your pew Bibles. If you notice, we now have our Pew Bible. So if you would like um, not only to be able to see it in your, um, in your bulletin, but have one in front of you and you don't have one, please feel free to borrow one of those. We're going to be looking at Judges chapter 2, verses 1-9. through nine. So let's read together. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of of this land, you shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides. their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord said these words to the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, they were in terrible distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. And they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank You for Your Word to us. And we pray that You would open our hearts to Your Word and Your Word to our hearts, that You might speak to us even right now. We long to meet with You and we long to be changed by You. We pray this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, my daughter Caroline, um, as some of you know, turned two weeks old a couple weeks ago. We're slowly, um, what did I say? Two years old, two weeks ago. You know when your wife gives you this puzzled look that you said something wrong. I had no idea what it was, but thank you for straightening me up. Caroline turned two years old two weeks ago. Uh, And we're slowly starting to move in the direction of potty training. So there's lots of potty talk in our house right now. Uh, some of our friends, actually Ben and Don Robertson, who are coming here to be with RUF, uh, they sent us a book recently, and it's called Everybody Poops. Um, I will spare you the details of the book. You can, you can imagine the general point. Uh, but if you are alive, with your, whether you're an animal or a bird or a fish or anything else or a person everybody poops. It's just part of the package. It's part of what it means to be human. Now, it's not central to what it means to be human, but it's something that is a part of our life. Well, Judges 2 is also about something that's integral to being human. And it's not a sideline issue. It's not one of the secondary things. It's about something that's actually at the very heart of what it means for us to be men and women created in the image of God. And it's this. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. It's a part of our spiritual DNA. It's something that we were created to do. Now, that's true whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or an agnostic or an atheist. Uh, Worship is something fundamental to who you are as a person. Now, that obviously doesn't mean that everybody goes to church on Sunday, that everybody sings hymns, Everybody reads the Bible. Um, It obviously doesn't mean that everybody even consciously believes in or acknowledges that there is a God. It doesn't mean any of those things. But wherever you are on that spectrum, it's still true of us that we're people who worship. Because what does it mean? What does it mean to worship? It means to treasure something, to exalt something, to value something at the core of who you are. It means to have something that stands at the center of who you are as a human being. As human beings, we are wired in such a way that we have to organize our life around something. We're driven to find meaning. We're driven to find something that gives us purpose. God gave us that, and we find lots of other things to chase after. But whatever that thing is in your life, we spend our life serving and cultivating and obeying that thing or those things that stands at the center of our life. We're going to say more about that in a minute, but um, it also quickly becomes obvious that there's something wrong with our worship, that it's often not pointed in the right direction, because we have a tendency to worship the wrong things, to center our lives on the wrong things. And the word that the Bible uses for those things is the word idols. Idols. Now the word idols itself doesn't appear in our passage, but when um, the writer of Judges talks about uh, the people of God bowing down to foreign gods, that's what he's talking about. And the theme of God's people straying from him and going into idolatry is one that runs right through the Bible. So this morning we're going to talk about what it means for us, um, what it means for us all to turn away from idols, back to the real God of the universe, back to what's meant to be the center of our lives. And we're going to ask three questions to get at the heart of this. What are idols? Why do they matter? And how can we be freed from them? What are idols? Why do they matter? How can we be freed from them? So first, let's take a look at what idols are. Now again, idol is not a word that we use very often in our cultural context. In fact, it often means something really positive. I googled the word idol recently, and guess what all the top, you know, Returns were all websites having to do with American Idol. Who's your favorite American Idol? Not really the sense of the term that the writer of the book of Judges had in mind. Let's take a look at at more at the way um, Judges presents this. Look at verse 11. See this writer's take on idols. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Verse 12, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Now, the Baals and the Ashtoreth, they're the local gods and goddesses of the Canaanites where they live. They are what the Bible elsewhere calls idols. In the words of the text, uh, it says that God's people go after them. They serve them. They bow down to them. In other words, they worship them. Now, you don't know anybody who literally bows down and worships Baal or Ashtoreth. There are not, um, that I'm aware of, any, any, temp, any pagan temples in, in Williamsburg that have stone idols in them. But um, an idol doesn't have to actually be a statue. It doesn't actually have to be a thing that we can see. Um, the way the Bible tends to speak about idols is something that's actually much more subtle than that. So here's our definition An idol is anything that we love and worship and serve rather than God. Idols are anything that we devote ourselves to other than God. Or put another way, idols are anything in our lives that rob God of the worship that is due to Him. So our idols aren't necessarily pagan fertility gods um, as they were in this passage, but they can be just about anything in our life that becomes the central point of reference for us. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said that when people cease to worship God, they don't worship nothing. They will now worship anything. John Calvin called our hearts, he said that our hearts are idle factories, that they're in constant production, churning them out. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that's sort of a rhetorical exaggeration. Um, You know, maybe I'm not really as devoted to God as I should be, but I'm, I'm I'm not worshiping other things. I'm not devoting my life to other things. Really? Well, maybe we should ask ourselves a few questions, um, some of which I've, I've got from Tim Keller, a PCA pastor, whose teaching has been very helpful for me in this. But here's some thoughts, maybe some questions we begin to ask ourselves. What is it that you spend your time thinking about? You know, when, when you sort of have brain time off, what is it that your thoughts gravitate to? What is it that it seems to grasp onto them? What do you daydream about? What do you get most excited about? What is it in your life that really makes you feel most alive? What area of life are you most free with your money? What are the things in life that you don't, you don't mind spending your money on or your time? How about this? What is it in life that you run to when you're hurting, when things are caving in around you? What do you look to for comfort? Another way of saying that is what's the fire at the center of your life that you're warming your soul next to? What is it that's bringing life and meaning to you? How about this? What are the things in your life that you're willing to protect by hedging the truth just a little bit? Maybe just shading your stories just slightly. Maybe just holding back a little bit of information. Sometimes we don't even know what these things are in our lives until they're taken away from us. What are the things in your life that are so central to you that you don't think you can live without them? What are the things that when you lose them, drive you to real anger, to a real sense of being jeopardized, to a real sense of panic? And the tricky thing about idols is they can be good created things that we twist by making them ultimate things. It can be something in your life that God created to be very good And you've taken it from the blessing it was meant to be, and you've put it at the very center of your heart. And so your love for it has begun to eclipse your love for more important things. Let me give you just a few examples. Um, Maybe an idol for you is your own convenience. Somewhere along the way, you've begun to think that the world really does revolve around you. Now, you would never say it that way, and I would never say it that way, but effectively, It may be what you think. Um, Here's how that plays out for me, even this week. I try to help out around the house as much as I can. Take care of the kids, run errands, be flexible for my family. It's Father's Day. Try to be the good father. Um, But then a day comes when um, work feels stressful, right? When life begins to feel too full. Maybe you're getting behind in things. And then, then what happens to you? Suddenly everything around you becomes an obstacle, are a problem to be solved, and everyone around you becomes an obstacle or a problem to be solved. So suddenly, um, I realize that nobody really appreciates my work around the house the way they ought to. <laughs> suddenly, I find myself being short with my wife. Suddenly, I'm not paying attention when Caroline is saying, Daddy, Daddy, because I'm busy checking my email. What's going on? Life feels like it's going too fast, it's more that you can handle, and so you begin to shut down, you begin to withdraw, even from the people that are closest to you. Because on days like that, that I realize that what I want most is just for my life to go smoothly. Is that so much to ask? That it would just work the way it's supposed to? Things to fall into place. For everybody around me, just to be impressed and enduring of me, so that everyone around me would put my needs at the, the center of their universes too. Is it really too much to ask? Well, above all, what I'm asking for is not to be too inconvenienced by anything. In other words, I think that every day ought to be Father's Day. But you see the problem with that. In the moments when we're caught in times like that, we're actually worshiping an idol. We're putting something else other than God at the center of our life. We're putting our own needs, we're putting our own, our own convenience our own desires, we're putting ourselves at the center of our life. It could be a host of other things. Maybe for you it's sex. Maybe that's what you spend your time thinking about and your efforts pursuing. Maybe that's what makes or breaks life for you. Maybe it's a thing that really makes you feel alive. Maybe it's your work. If you're doing well at work, if things are successful, everything in life is fine, but if things start to break down there, Then suddenly, uh, you feel like your life's on the verge of falling apart. You don't have any peace. You can't rest. You become defensive with everybody around you. And even your closest friends get the message that they need to give you some space and leave you alone. Maybe for you, it's your entertainment or your hobbies. And you find yourself organizing your life around the next fun thing. Now, maybe that was what you did over the weekend. And you realize it's Monday or Tuesday. And all you can do is think back fondly to the previous weekend. Or Wednesday rolls around and now you can start thinking about what you're going to do the next weekend. The concert that you're going to, the golf tournament that you're going to play in. Whatever it is you might have planned. Maybe the thing that really grabs your soul is the pursuit of stuff. More stuff, newer stuff, cooler stuff. Now again, no one in this room thinks, I like stuff. Other people like stuff. I just have a short list of things that I really need. Um, you know, I have this genuine need. For me, it's a technology lust. And that's why I think my computer at home is just too slow. No one should have to put up with it. And I need a new iMac. Uh, What about for you? Maybe for you, maybe your car is just a little too old. Maybe it just looks a little too dated and the paint's starting to chip. And you need a new one. Or maybe your house is a little too small or your furniture is just starting to look a little old, not as stylish as it once was. And you find yourself becoming more and more absorbed in the things that you need. Now, the Bible calls this covetousness. It's being consumed and wanting something that's not yours, whether that belongs to your neighbor or whether it's sitting on the shelf in a store waiting for you. Paul makes an interesting comment on this on Colossians 3.5. He says this, "...put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you." sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul knows that idols are not simply stone statues, but it's anything that grabs a hold of our hearts and steals worship from the true God. And well, that's what idols are, but it leaves us with our next question. Why do they really matter? Well, they matter for at least two reasons. One that might be obvious to you and maybe one that's a little less obvious. Uh, first, idols matter because they offend God. God who created us to be in a relationship with Him, to worship, to honor Him, is rightly offended when we spend that worship and we spend that delight in other places and on other things. Worshipping any, anything other than Him is an offense. It's a wrong, it's a misstep. It's what the Bible calls sin. Now, when God brought His people out of the... Um, out of Egypt, out of slavery. He takes them to Mount Sinai. And among other things, he gives them the Ten Commandments. You remember what the first one is. God says, You shall have no other gods before me. Now, in the Hebrew, the phrase is really, You shall have no other gods before my face. It doesn't mean, You shall have no other gods um, before me in line. or You shall have no other gods that you pay attention, pay attention to before you get to me. It means you shall have no other gods in my presence. In other words, you shall have no other gods at all. Now this is the commandment that we see the Israelites disobey in flagrant ways time and again in the book of Judges. They bow down to Baal. They bow down to Asherah. They're offending the true God. And for us, when we set our affections on anything other than God, we are doing the same thing. We are offending our God. Now the other reason that idols matter. It might not be as obvious on the surface, but you know it experientially. And it's this. Our idolatry matters not only because it offends God, but because our idols deceive us. Here's how they deceive us. They promise us life, but they bring us death. Or another way of saying it, uh, they promise us freedom, but instead they enslave us. Look at me at verse 3. The angel of the Lord says to the people, so now I say, I will not drive them, your enemies, out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. These idols will be a snare to you. What does a snare do? It promises life, but it delivers death. If you're going to go fishing, you don't just drop a hook in the water and hope that a fish will throw himself on it. What do you do? You put bait on the hook. You hide the hook. You have to entice the fish so that when he looks, he sees life. In the end, he gets the hook. Uh, Liz and I, in a previous house, you don't need to be worried if you come over to our house now, in a previous house, we had mice, and lots of them. And what did I do? I set out my mouse traps around the house, and you put a little cheese in the center, hopefully, hoping that that's what the mouse is going to see before they hear the snap. Another way of saying this Simply that the things we chase after, the things we devote ourselves to other than God, they, they too promise us freedom in life, but instead they bring us death and slavery. I promise not to use too many Lord of the Rings analogies this summer, but this one's just too appropriate, so I need to use it. If you've read the book The Hobbit, you know, it's about a hobbit named Bilbo, and in the middle of the story, in a dark, dark tunnel, he finds a ring that turns out to be a magic ring. And at the time, Bilbo is a thief, and he finds out that when he puts the ring on, he becomes invisible, which is a handy trick for a thief. Well, once you step into the next set of books, The Lord of the Rings, you find um, that this magic ring, this little trinket, is actually a much more weighty find than he ever knew. Because we start to see with Bilbo that this thing that started out as just a convenience, he can now no longer live without. He's He's always fiddling with it in his pocket. He's putting it on, he's taking it off. He gets nervous when it's not around. And when the time comes for him to pass it on to his nephew, Frodo, he can't let go of it. He needs the help of his friend Gandalf to be able to lay it down. Because this thing that started out as just um, a helpful addition addition in life has wound its way around his soul, and he can't let go of it. This ring started out promising him freedom, and it ends up enslaving him. Now, here's an example um, from a thing in life that could become an idol for us. We live in a culture whose view of eating is completely out of whack. Food has taken on this obsessive place in our culture. And some of us are making, turning eating, turning food into an idol in our lives. Maybe you eat to find comfort or to distract yourself. You find yourselves taking something that good that was created for our enjoyment and for our sustenance. Take it, you're taking a good thing and you're making it an ultimate thing. Um, you find, and we find, that we eat whether our body really needs it or not. Whenever we begin to feel stressed out or anxious, we eat to soothe our souls. Some of us spend the majority of our days actually thinking about food. What are we going to eat at the next meal? What are we going to have for a snack? And the deceptive thing about this is... This can take hold in your soul whether you are overeating or not. You can spend your whole day looking at cooking light and have the same issue. Now, some of us have maybe the opposite problem. Maybe you eat too little, and maybe your days are consumed with thinking about how not to eat. Maybe you know how many calories are in every article of food that you see. Maybe when you see a hamburger, you don't see a hamburger. You see a collection of calories, and you know that if you eat that, ca- that hamburger, that you're not going to be able to have anything substantial for another day and a half. Maybe that's how you look at food. Because food has begun to rule you and it's captured your heart. Now, with food, as with so many other things, it may well be that there's an even deeper idol of our hearts lying underneath that. Uh, a young woman who, has, uh, who I'm, whom I know who has anorexia told me that part of the draw... Part of the thing that brings you into that particular kind of disordered eating is that you begin to see that if you can not eat, that you feel strong and in control of your life. And the people around you who need to eat, you begin to look at as weak, as people who have lives that are out of control. So what's really going on in our heart there is the desire to grasp so tightly in the middle of a confusing, difficult world, onto something that we can control, that we can own, that can give us a sense of power that's going to sustain us. Everything else in your life might be hard or painful or falling apart, but you can find your comfort in food, whether that's going to it or running from it. And whether it's eating for you or something else, It brings up the question, if that's what idols are, if that's why they matter, and if they really do enslave us, is there any hope? Because if you're in the middle of something like that and conscious of it, you know the days when you're close to despair and you think, does the gospel really have power here? Does God really go here into this area of my life? Well, our text gives us um, two thoughts on the last question of how do we be freed from our idols? We're going to see that they're really two sides of the same coin and they're going to really be the same thing that Jesus talks about as well. The first one comes in verse 2. When God's confronting His idolatrous people, what does He say is the right response to the idols in our lives? He says, he says break down their altars. That was His commandment to His people when they came into, the, came into a land full of pagan idols. He says, break down their altars. And that's just another way of saying repent. Turn around. Turn away from those things. Stop going in the wrong direction you were heading in and start going in the direction that God's really calling you to. When you see the idols of your heart, when you see the things other than God that you are following, that you're turning after, part of what we do is to break down the altars, to turn around to stop loving and seeking that thing and put our affections somewhere else. Now, that's often going to involve outward actions. okay? But it's not simply outward actions because the call to repent is the call to have a change of heart, to have a change of affections, to have a change of the thing at the core of our being that gives rise to our actions and that's get, that spills out into our actions. Now look what the Israelites do here in verse 4. They lift up their voices and they weep. But then we get to verse 19. It says, they did not drop their practices or their stubborn ways. You see, they show this outward remorse, but they don't really have a heart level of repentance. They don't really turn. They don't really seek change. And since their hearts are ultimately unchanged, their actions are unchanged in the end as well. Maybe when you look at yourself, you find that that's actually going on with you as well. As much lip service as you might give to confession. As much lip service as you might give to turning away from things in your life other than Jesus. Maybe you're going to look more closely and find that you hate the consequences of your sin, but you don't hate the sin itself. If sin really does bring destruction and slavery, sooner or later we see that. Maybe you find yourself hating those things. But not hating the thing itself. Loving and desiring to be freed from those things, but not loving and desiring the God who actually brings that kind of freedom. You've not yet replaced one love for a, for a greater love. And the second thing that our text alludes to here in verse 10 you know, what goes wrong with the people of God when they first enter into the promised land? All the original generation dies off. And it says in verse 10, the next generation didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done from it for Israel. Part of what turning from idols involves is breaking down their idols. And the second part of this, that's always happening at the same time, is to uh, remember the work of the Lord. And that's simply another way of saying believe the gospel. Remember the good work of God on our behalf. That is what is the thing that is always going to fuel the affection of our hearts. What's going to give us the strength, the desire, the ability to actually turn from other things? We have to love something else more. And the Bible tells us that it always begins with God pursuing us. It is God who reaches out to us. It is God who comes to us in love God's people had lost sight of everything that God had done for them. And we tend to do the same thing. We turn to idols thinking that that they are going to give us life. That they are going to bring us the freedom that we want. And instead they bring death. And we too need to remember the gospel that God pursued us in the person of Jesus. That in the face of our sin and our rebellion and all the idols of our hearts, He responded by bringing rescue Today's Father's Day. We have a true Father who comes after us, his people, in mercy and grace. As we said last week, remember, we have a God who loves the unlovely. So, these two thoughts of, of turning from our idols, of breaking, down their, of breaking down their altars, and remembering the gospel really two sides of the same coin they're inseparable for us. One of the things that you're loving and treasuring in your life right now, that are actually bringing you death and driving you away from Jesus. You need to remember the thing that is actually most beautiful. You need to remember a God who has come after you, who offers you real life, who offers you real deliverance from the things that have got their hands grasping at your neck and cutting off the air. Now, for some of us, the things in our life that we're pursuing after, it may well be a long journey of learning again and again to turn from those. If the eating in your life has become completely disordered, it is going to be a journey in which God brings healing to you. But it begins with turning away from all the other things that we're chasing. and Turning back to the God who pursues us. This is all exactly what Jesus spoke about. The Gospel of Mark when Jesus first steps onto the scene, the very first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark are these. The time is filled. The kingdom of God has, is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Turn away from all the other things. And remember and believe the truth of God pursuing us in Jesus. And we opened up talking about the fact that we all worship. And we are all desperately in need God, to set our worship right, to set our hearts on track again, that we might find not the slavery and death of our idols, but the freedom and life that are only found in Jesus. Idols are snares. They promise life and bring death. The gospel says just the opposite. It tells us of a death, the death of God's own son, that instead we might have life. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are people who are easily led astray and willingly led astray. Father, we pray that You would more and more become the central affection of our hearts. We pray that we would see the beauty of Jesus that meets us in the middle of every need. We pray that we would be caught up with Your glory and Your majesty and that You would show the hollowness of our idols to us for what they really are. Let us turn to You, to life. We thank You that You are merciful to us in Jesus. And we pray these prayers to You in His name. Jesus, our matchless Savior. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.